Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful that you are a God of answers, that you know what is needed and when it is needed and how it is needed. And Lord, we're so thankful that you haven't given up on any one of us, but your arm of mercy is stretched out still. So we invite you here in this room. We invite your spirit to soften our hearts, and we invite your angels to, to enjoy our presence with them here. And we pray, Lord, that you will rebuke the devil so that we will hear the message that you want us to hear. We thank you for your healing power, and we thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we talk about the issue of addictions, um, I wonder, I asked the question already, how many, of you are, how many of you are addiction professionals or help support others who are going through addictions? I wonder how many of you know someone who is struggling with an addiction? Can I just see your hand? You know someone. Now, that might be, mean you know yourself, okay? But the majority of you raised your hand and said that you know someone who's dealing with addictions. Of those people that you are thinking of, how many know someone who is in the Adventist church who is struggling with an addiction? Okay, yeah, almost the same number of hands. So this is very relevant to us, to the church, on multiple levels. One, because God did say, go into all the world. And so we have a responsibility to everyone in the world. And also because we're connected to people who struggle with this issue. We know them. They probably sit behind us in the pew at church. Or we associate with them in other ways. So this is a really important um, concept that I think it's important to understand with addictions is that it's very real, it's very personal, and these are human beings. These are children of God. They may not know it yet, but they are children of God. And I think it's really important that we put that human face on the issue of addictions because so often what we do is we kind of separate ourselves from them. We kind of say, oh, you're the addict. You're the, the problem. Um, that is one of the most dangerous things that we can do, is to put that label on them and to kind of unintentionally, though it may be, to kind of separate ourselves from them. So what a lot of what I will be doing is trying to connect us back to the humanity of what the issue of addictions is about. Um, you know, we could probably spend the rest of our time talking just about that video and going point by point about what that young boy discovered about the issue of addictions, and we could learn a lot. But, you know, some of the key things that I picked up was when the teenager said, well, when the young boy said, did you want to become addicted? And he said, no. And I can probably, I've not talked to every single person who's ever been addicted, but I could probably guarantee that nobody ever wanted to become addicted to whatever it is. And I think that's really key 
as we think about, well, how do we think about these people? This was not a path that they intended. So let's look at what was it that really took them down that road. So first of all, some key terms as we talk about the area of addictions. There is substance misuse, substance misuse, which isn't technically an addiction, but it's using a substance, um, and as we'll see, it could be also a behavior, but using something inappropriately to, to an extent where it's starting to harm you, but you may not necessarily be dependent on the drug or the behavior, the person, whatever it is. So um, it's good to know that there is a distinction because the earlier we start intervention, when they haven't reached the point of addiction or dependency, the earlier we can help them, the better their chances of recovery and the less damage that they have to recover from. Substance use disorder is, the technical definition, recurrent use of substance causes clinical and functional significant impairment. So this is where it's really start causing problems for you in your life. Um, based on, it, they look at impaired control, so you, have no, you no longer have control. When you have substance misuse, you often still have control over your life. You actually can still make the decision. You have that decision-making power. When we get into a use disorder, that's where you get to a place where you can no longer control it. It controls you. Uh, there's social impairment. With a substance misuse, you may not realize that people are actually having problems because they seem to be fine. They're acting just as normal. They're coming to church regularly. They're doing their, going to work regularly. They have all the normalcy of life, quote unquote. But with a disorder, that's when you see they're reclusive, they're starting to pull away, there's erratic behavior that you can't explain. Um, and, and also there's pharmacological criteria, there's you know, certain chemical dependencies, there are also physiological things happening that are deeper. Now, opioid use disorder. Anybody hear about opioids recently? <laughs> It's a huge issue, right? So we are going to spend some time at the end of today, hopefully, <laughs> to talk a little bit more about the opioid issue as well, because I know it's such a massive issue right now. Also, understanding the difference between dependence and addiction is important. A dependence is when you're, you have a physiological adaptation. In other words, your body phys physically needs whatever that is. But with an addiction, it's just much more severe. It's just the intensity is greater. And the dependency often leads to an addiction, and depending on a number of different, different issues, whether or not the dependency actually transitions to an addiction. The addiction involves changes to your brain. We'll talk about that. Compulsive seeking of the drug or whatever it is in spite of negative consequences. And we'll see a little bit about why that happens as well. Another um, going on 
it's difficult to distinguish between dependence and, ad and ad addiction. Um, you do need thorough assessment for this. So, so our goal, our goal is to get the people help. Is to help them recognize that you know what, whatever the situation, just just see if you can get some help. And this is very difficult because, well, it's difficult for any of us to accept help when we're not ready for it, isn't it? All the more so when there's an addictive process happening. There's a lot of denial that's happening. Um, tolerance and withdrawal are two important aspects to, to keep in mind. Tolerance is where you need more and more of the, let's just use alcohol, you need more and more of it to get the same kind of effect, those happy euphoric effects. And withdrawal is when you take it away and those terrible symptoms happen. So sometimes the withdrawal process is so painful that the individuals are not able to stay on withdrawal. They, they go back to the drug because they may not have the, the type of support surrounding them to help in that process. And I've listed on here some of those symptoms. Stress, anxiety, depression, nausea, vomiting, muscle aches, cramping. I mean, those sound like things that anybody can be going through, but all the more intense for individuals who are going through withdrawal. My brother actually has seizures with mm, Yeah. So can you imagine, stop drinking, have seizures? I mean, what are your choices here? You know, it's a life and death issue either way, either way. So definitely needing very intensive care for, for that situation. Okay. The addiction problem. This is a research study that was published in 2011 it, titled Prevalence of Addictions, a Problem of the Majority or the Minority. What do we think? Are addictions like really rare? Like really, really rare? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, you already know. So they looked at 11 types of addictions. Addiction to tobacco alcohol, illicit drugs, those are the ones we think of, right? Those are addictions. But also addiction to eating, gambling, the internet, addiction to love or sex, addiction to exercise, to work or shopping. Shopping addiction? Yeah, it's possible. Exercise addiction? Absolutely. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of those things on those lists are necessarily evil, inherently bad? Yeah, really just the first three, right? I mean, the other things are, are well, the Internet's not necessary for life, although it has become that way. Uh, well, okay, gambling, we can put that on the, so four things, right, okay? But the other things are normal parts of life, and yet they can become addictive, truly addictive. And now we're talking, not, we're not talking about, you know, just throwing out the word addiction, right? Oh, I'm addicted to chocolate, or oh, I'm addicted to, you know, I just love this so much. We're talking about real clinical issues here. 
So as they did the study, what they found was that 47% of adults suffer with any one of these over a given 12-month period. 47. So I hate to say this, but 47% of the people in this room at some point in the past 12 months have struggled with an addiction. That's how real and that's how close to home this really is. Think of 47% of the people in your church. Don't think of specific people. <laughs> Just think about 47% of the people, okay? Think about 47% of the people at, you know, the shopping mall or at, at your child's school. Of course, this research was done with adults, not children, but... Just think about what that really means and what that looks like. And this was published a few years ago, eight years ago. Yeah, so, so I don't think things have gotten better since then. Okay, so types of addictions, okay? We are very familiar with the substance abuses, right? We know about these. We've been hearing about these, and you know the Adventist Church has a strong history of working in this area. We had our five-day plan to stop smoking. We were very strong proponents of prohibition. We worked with the women's temperance movement. You know, so the Adventist church really recognized the need to be working in this area. But we also have what are called process or behavioral addictions. Now, these are the ones that are a little bit more difficult to identify, um, and they're a little bit more sensitive because anybody can fall under any one of these. Uh, you know, um, and this is a short list, by the way. It's it, just about anything, just about anything. In fact, this is what we can get addicted to. Anything we can we feel we cannot live without and leads us to live an unbalanced lifestyle regardless of the harms it causes to us or others we can be addicted to anything we can be addicted to our cars to our computers to our friends you know codependent relationships we could be addicted to our phones now, I want to pause here and say that, you know, this doesn't mean that every, because, you know, we check our phone first thing in the morning, that doesn't necessarily mean you're addicted to it. We kind of throw that out there. We want to be careful because sometimes that minimizes the actual addiction and the people who are truly su suffering and struggling. We don't want to do that, but we also want to recognize that basically any one of us are prone. We're all prone. To, to forming addictions. So what is an addiction? Now this is sort of the, the official uh, definition from the American Society of Addictions Medicine. They define it as a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Let's tease that apart a little so we understand a little bit more. So it's primary, 
That means, in medical terminology, that means that it does not have an underlying uh, other um, health problem that's causing it. So the addiction is the main problem. So for example, if someone has diabetes, obesity may be the thing that, that is pushing the diabetes. Or maybe hypertension started it off and they got to other diseases. Okay, there's sort of like this one disease caused another. But they're saying that with addiction, there were no other medical problems that were really causing it. Makes you wonder, well, what was the cause? Is there a cause? We'll talk about that. Chronic disease, chronic disease, meaning just like diabetes, just like heart disease, just like high blood pressure, just like obesity, well, maybe not so much obesity, but it's a long-term disease. It's a disease that basically you're going to have to be careful with for the rest of your life. Um, and it includes the brain. We're going to talk about that. Um, we'll talk about the brain a little bit. Dysfunctions in these circuits leads to characteristic, I, I really so appreciate what they put on this list. Dysfunction leads to biological, psychological, social, and what? Spiritual manifestations. Okay, these are the official people who work in addictions. They're saying that addictions have spiritual implications. And I think this is really important because it means that we as a church have something to say about this. We have something to do about this because we are a spiritual body. And they're talking also about biology. That's our physical frame. Psychology, our mental functioning. Social, our connectedness and spiritual. The Seventh-day Adventist Church believes that there are four components to our health, to our well-being. They are physical, mental, social, and spiritual. Addictions is all about that. And with addictions, every single one of those areas are hit. Every single one. So it's like addictions are the extreme, the worst case scenario of health problems because every single one is hit. Going on, they also say this, and we, we talked about this. Addiction is characterized by the inability to consistently abstain, consistently. So they may be able to, you know, get off for a, a couple of days, maybe even a week, but they had fall back into it. So they're not able to be consistent and stay away from the addiction. Uh, there's impairment in behavior control. They're not able to control their behaviors, the cravings. There's the inability to recognize significant problems with your behavior. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. You know, they may have lost their job, they may have lost their house, they may have lost whatever else, but there's an inability to see that that's a problem. There's pr problems with their interpersonal relationships, 
dysfunctional emotional response, how they respond emotionally to, you know, the death of a loved one, or, or um, bad news, you know, the response is just, oh, that's odd. You wouldn't expect that. Like other chronic diseases, addiction involves cycles of relapse and remission. So they, they get off, they go back. They get off, they go back. And a key point here, again, is that um, just like any other chronic disease, it's a cyclical issue. So a key point with that is that if someone with, say, diabetes, they do well, they take care of themselves for a while, they kind of decrease their medications, they're doing well, but then, oh, something happens, tragedy strikes, and then they have to go back on the meds. The same kind of situation is happening to someone who has an addiction, and yet our response to the person with diabetes is very different from our response to the person who's struggling with the addiction, isn't it? The way we think about that person is very different. Although there are things happening that that individual actually can't control. Okay, addictions can result in disability or premature death. Okay, usually when a, an addiction is being um, uh, diagnosed, what they look for are three or more of these things happening in a given 12-month period. And the specific diagnosis really depends on the addictive substance or behavior. It depends on, on the tools they're using. But what, what we look for is there's tolerance and withdrawal, which we talked about earlier. They use in larger amounts than intended. Oh, I'll just take a little cup. I'll just, I'll just take one cigarette. I'll just, you know, do, I'll just spend five minutes on the computer, whatever it may be. But it ends up being much longer than they really intended. Their desire um, or they, they have a desire or they have un unsuccessful attempts to stop. So they're trying really hard or they want to. They say, yeah, I've really got to stop this. I, I really wish I could stop or they've tried to stop, or to, or to just cut back. Spending a lot of time procuring the substance. There's a preoccupation. Everything about life is all about, I need to make sure I can get that. They plan the schedule. They plan, you know, their whole life is, revolves around having to get whatever it is. And a decline or elimination of social, occupational, and recreational activities. They, they become very isolated. And that's one of the most dangerous things that could happen to someone who has an addiction. So we can alter chemical pathways in the brain. Let's talk briefly about the five stages of addiction. The way that you care for a person depends on where they are in these stages. And again, earlier, the earlier we catch them, the better able we are to help them. So experimentation, this is where, you know, unfortunately, a lot of time our children get this at schools. You know, someone is kind of just passing it around on the playground, and this is when they may just try it. And they don't realize that they're kind of setting themselves up to, unfortunately, a, bat, a, a worse pathway. This is often not noticed 
but we want to, you know, as we talk, this is really important, keeping communication open with our, especially our teenagers. How easy is that, right? Sometimes the communication is just letting them know that you're there when they need you. The communication doesn't always have to be telling them what they should do or shouldn't do because that may actually push them away. But letting them know that you are there to help them or to listen to them, that is one of the most important things that we can do um, is, is just letting them know, I'm a safe place. You can come to me whenever you need help. The next stage is, this is moving kind of slow, okay, regular use. So they're no longer experimenting. It becomes, you know, maybe a daily or a weekly. Um, it, it comes part of their everyday life. This could be difficult to discover, or this is when some of the signs start showing up. They may start lying a little bit about where they've been or what they were doing. You might see signs of things, you know, in the room, in the bedroom, and you wonder, what, what was that? Um, and, you, you know, you're just not getting clear answers from them. The third stage is risky use. So this is tough because everyone has a different definition of what risky is. But um, being aware that things could be escalating, their behavior alarms you. When they do something that, whoa, I don't expect that from you. That's not usual. That's not normal clear sign that there could be something wrong. And we want to discover ways to help at that point. We really want to get help at that point. Dependence, we talked about dependence as the fourth stage. And they really need help at this point. This is, you, we do not want them to go past dependence. And this is challenging because they may not feel that they need help. This is the stage where they still are in control of their behavior. They're still making choices, but they are dependent, and so it's very difficult to, to actually get them to a place where they will get help. And finally, the addiction itself. And we really definitely need help at this time. I want to say at this point that it's okay to get help. I feel like we should all chant that or something. We don't need to chant, but we should say it. We should, we should all be okay with getting help. It doesn't matter if you're talking about an addiction or what. It's okay to get help. You know, even Christ, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his friends, won't you stay up and pray with me? He was crying for help, and nobody was there for him. It's okay to ask for help. And we need to let them know that too. It's okay if you need help. But it's not okay to not get help because things only get worse. The process of addiction, it really depends on the user Okay, what is going on in that person's life, their health, other health issues, their um, age of onset, personality, uh, 
very, you know, some, there are some genetic predispositions for, for addictions as well. So the genetics, not only because, you know, your family does things certain ways, so it's behavior, but it's also what, the, the, what your family passes on to you in terms of what you like, the things that pull you. Okay, those are all part of it. The drug itself, you know, opioids have been around for how long? Yeah, right? I mean, I'm sure you probably remember hearing stories from, oh, East, the East Indies, how they brought opioids and, you know, all of these smoky houses. Well, those drugs were so, the potency was so little compared to what we have today. The dosage that we have today is enormous compared to what they were dealing with. And so there's no, no wonder that we have such a problem today. It was a problem then too, but it's so much worse now. The environment, and this is another component that we often forget, the environment that the individual is in affects their progression. The social setting, group expectations, cultural context. Now, I look around the room and I see a number of different cultures represented here. And every single culture has our own expectations. But is there also a Christian culture expectation? Is there a cultural expectation within the Adventist church? Is there a cultural expectation within Adventists living in Michigan? Wherever you go, whatever pocket of people you're talking about, there's a culture. And so all of those are important to consider. And sometimes what we need to do is advocate to break down that culture. Because it could be putting people at risk. There are good things about every single culture, but there are some things that every single culture ought to maybe look at again and see if it's actually benefiting. Okay, that's another soapbox. Addiction and the brain. We have just a few minutes left, so we're going to go through this quickly. And it's late afternoon. You don't want to hear a lot of science. So addiction and the brain. It's important to know that addictions do affect the brain. There's something called the reward pathway. And anytime there's anything rewarding, that includes food, water, and sexual relationships with your spouse. Those are things that God gave in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so they're not bad in the right context. And God programmed our brain that when we get those things, that our brain actually gets happy. And our whole body gets happy. And in fact, they can be healing to our bodies as well. But over time, when we're looking at drugs, they also affect this same reward pathway in the brain over time, the, drug, the, the person is not able to choose whether or not the drug is a good idea. And let's talk about why. So here's one area of the brain that's, that's um, affected, the nucleus accumbens. It's very much involved in addiction, and pretty much all addictions affect this area. We also have the orbitofrontal cortex. 
Okay, you've heard a lot about the frontal cortex, I'm sure. The orbitofrontal cortex is, um, you can see on the picture, it's just below the prefrontal cortex. It is, it um, regulates the ability to appreciate consequences of your actions. So it tells you whether or not that was a good consequence. And um, it also helps you decide if something is a trivial or a critical decision. For example, you're out at a restaurant. You can't decide what to order. That's a trivial decision. But you're, you're at a crosswalk and there's a 16-wheeler coming down the road, whether or not you cross the road at that time, that's a critical decision. Well, with drug use or with addictions, that ability is diminished. You can't tell, is this an important decision or not? And it's a physiological effect on your brain. So it hinders your ability to make sound decisions. Another area in the brain is the anterior cingulate cortex. And this tells you if your decision matches, the result of your decision matches what you were expecting to happen. So if you, if you uh, for example, if you eat something that makes you get a bellyache, then most of us know, okay, don't eat that again. But with someone with an addiction, that ability is compromised. And they're not able to judge that that was a bad decision and they shouldn't do it again. Their ability to make sound decisions is compromised. So the prefrontal cortex also is involved with the addiction um, process. The, uh, the brain activity in the prefrontal cortex is also diminished. I'm going to skip the... Um, the brain, because I want to get to talking about the opioid crisis a, a, a little bit. I want to, um, again, put a, a real face to this. And I want, this is an article that was published in the New York Times in, on May 31st. It's a story of a young girl whose mother struggles with, the opioid, with an opioid. And I'm going to just very quickly read you some excerpts from this story. So Layla Keg is the, is the young girl. She's a teenager. Her mother is back home after three weeks of who knows where. She says she's done with heroin. She's ready for rehab and wants to be part of her daughter's life. But Layla has heard all of this before and doesn't believe a single word. Layla's trust was broken long ago. After years of watching her mother cycle in and out of addiction and rehab. And it goes on to say that she found needles in her mom's car. Five days later, after that, Layla's mom is gone again. So, OxyContin, which is one of the opioids, they, what uh, this author of this article is saying, that a generation is growing up amid the throes of a historic epidemic, epidemic. Call them Generation O. 
We've heard about lots of generations, right? Every generation has a name. These are called Generation O. The children whose families are trapped in a relentless grip of addiction, rehab, and prison. And here in this county, which is in Ohio, there's a mix of verdant farmland, old mill towns, where everyone appears to know someone who has struggled with dependency. Sounds a little bit like the drive I had coming up here. Verdant farmland, old mills town. In, in this town, um, well, I'll read this. In a nation where more than 130 people die every day from an opioid overdose, and in a region in Ohio where the impact of addiction has taken a severe emotional toil on children, school is for many children, many students, a refuge. A place where they attend classes but also have access to hot meals, hot showers, and donated clothes. On Fridays, educators said students can take home backpacks full of food so they won't go hungry over the weekend. So imagine a town where that is what they have to do for their children. The school has become the home. They, the story goes on to say that the children come to school, they will shower at the school. They will put on fresh clothes, clean clothes. And then before they go home, which is usually at night dark, before the school closes the doors, they will change back into their old clothes so that the parents don't take the new clothes and sell them so they can buy the drugs. Now listen to this about the story of Layla's mom. Not too long ago, Layla lived in middle-class neighborhood with her sister, her stepfather, and mom. They sat down most evenings for dinner, cooked by her mother, who worked then as a hospice nurse. The people who struggle with these addictions are not bad people. They're not people who have been just living a life of vice and crime and have just given their life over to whatever evil, the pleasures of this world. These are people who have had real jobs, real lives, real families. They've had everything in their life, but then something happens. In the case of Layla's mom, it was a, a job stress. And as a nurse, she had access to painkillers. And she just took one just to help ease the stress. And now she's homeless. Her children have nothing. These are people who are just like you and me, but they've had something go wrong. Anyone, anyone can go down that pathway. So my question for us as we close up, my question for us is what are we going to do as a church? What are we going to do? Do you think this church can be a place for hope and healing? 
Do you think we could be that resource for those children? Layla wants to become a nurse, a nurse practitioner when she grows up. But look at the conditions she has to live through. Will she ever make it? We really don't know because everything is fighting against her. Are, how are we going to take this and say, Lord, this is a huge problem. We've probably gotten ourselves into a mess, but you've got to help us out. Well, tomorrow we're going to talk about how. We'll look at what are the real, true ways that we can recover and find healing for the individuals, but also for the community. And you know what? We also need it for the church. So let's close up with a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, this problem of addictions is too great for us. Lord, it's a problem of sin in this world and the pain and the suffering. But Father, you have said, Christ said, if the Son will set you free, then you are free indeed. Then, Lord, we want that freedom for ourselves and the people around us. Lord, I ask that you give us that love in our hearts that you have for a sick and dying world so that we will embrace them and tell them, can I help you? Lord, you are the true source of healing. You are the true source of help. We cannot do without you. So we pray that you teach us what we are to do and how we can serve. And in that process, Lord, we will experience healing ourselves. We thank you for that. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org dot org.